I want to invite you to, if you've got your Matthew journal, to take it and turn to Matthew 19 in your journal. If you've got a Bible, don't have your journal, turn in it. Uh, some of you have hardback Bibles, some of you have electronic Bibles. I would encourage you to turn to Matthew 19. Uh, I decided with it being the 4th of July, and we might have a lot of guests, not to have a quiz today. So there is no quiz. I don't know about you, but that always made my day when I was in college. I mean, woo! No quiz today, but no quiz today. I also want to take advantage of the time that we have to explore today what is, I think without a doubt, the two most challenging issues facing Christians 2,000 years ago and facing us today. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 19, and Matthew 19 begins by really closing out chapter 18 that we looked at two weeks ago. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, looking back to the text that had to do with reconciliation, you know, who's greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who serves, the one who's like a child, the one who starts life over seeking the kingdom of God. How do you reconcile with a brother? Well, you go to him. You take others if you have to. You tell it to the church. I mean, whatever you need to do, you need to reconcile. And how often do you forgive your brother? Seven times? No. Seventy-seven times. In other words, you forgive him as many times as you need. And so that's what he's talking about in the opening of chapter 19. really belongs with chapter 18. He then describes how that he goes down to Judea, across the Jordan, and there great crowds are coming and he's healing them. He then turns to two subjects. Two subjects that are, as I mentioned a few moments ago, probably the most difficult subjects, biggest challenges facing us today as it faced Jesus' followers 2,000 years ago. And both of them begin with the letter M, marriage and money. And, And you may be thinking, I don't know why those are the two biggest challenges. You think about America today. I mean, one of the biggest battles going on in America today is what is marriage? Who, who, who should we love? I mean, how do we love? That, that's one of the biggest issues facing America today. I mean, there are fights going on everywhere in the courts. There's fights going on in state legislatures, in communities. I mean, we live in a culture that's trying to figure out how do we relate to one another. And then the other issue is money. I mean, you think about just how much God has blessed America. I mean, here's the 4th of July, and God has blessed our generation, our country, more than any generation or nation perhaps before us. I mean, when I think about the blessings that June and I have compared to what my parents had, compared to what my grandparents had, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And then when I think about the blessings that my children and grandchildren hopefully will have, God is saying to us today, as much as he was 2,000 years ago to that generation, how do you use the money that I bless you with? So today we dive into two incredibly difficult topics. Right in the middle of this chapter Jesus does something, Matthew plugs it in there for a reason. I want you to notice, I'm starting in the middle, but if you turn to the middle, then children were brought to him, 
that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples are rebuking them. You know, take them away. He doesn't have time. You see the crowds. You see all the sick people. And Jesus responds, let the little children come to me. And don't you hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such. Little children is a favorite word of Matthew describing new disciples of Jesus. Okay, these are followers of Jesus that are just trying to figure out what it means to follow him. And so he's talking about children in the faith. And so he lays his hands on them. Mark says he literally took them in his arms and he blessed them. And then he sends them away. What's Matthew doing? He's harking back to chapter 18. I mean, if you go back to 18 at the very beginning, the big question is, who's greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes a little child and sets him down in their midst. And this is from the message. I love Eugene Peterson's translation here. He says, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you, us, return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Whoever becomes simple and elemental. And that's what Jesus is going to be talking about today. How do we get back to basics? How do we get back to the elemental doctrines that that God has set up from the beginning of time in regards specifically to marriage and to uh, money? Whoever becomes simple and elemental again, like this child, will rank high in God's kingdom. These topics are challenging. And I I don't want to speak to them without sensitivity, especially marriage. June and I have celebrated now 44 years of marriage. Some of our loved ones, some of our friends have not been so fortunate. I've sat in the courthouse with a dear, dear friend and listened as a judge dissolved his marriage. Just me and him side by side grieving what could have been. I've been at, you know, a restaurant at 2 o'clock in the morning as a friend tells me about their spouse leaving them, leaving the children behind, just saying, I'm through with this and I'm walking out. I can't sympathize, but I can empathize. And so I don't approach this topic flippantly. And I hope you'll hear that as I, as I try to address these issues. These are difficult issues. And we as Christians have got to approach them with incredible grace. Listen, I need more grace from God than, than anyone. I mean, I, you know, in so many ways... Paul's words haunt, I think, a lot of us as we get older as Christians. I am the chief of sinners. I mean, sin just really has a way of getting hold of us sometimes and not letting go. And we realize how much we need the grace of God. And so I want to begin with those words as we deal with two very difficult topics. The Pharisees first come to Jesus. And they ask one of the hottest issue questions that there was going on in the first century. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is based on a passage found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 and following. And and it had been debated ferociously in the Jewish community of Jesus' day. 
When Jesus was a little boy, there were two schools, two rabbis who were very prominent. They were leaders in the Sanhedrin. I mean, one had been president, one had been vice president. One was the school of Hillel. Hillel was the older of the two. He was about 20 years older than Shammai. But Hillel had developed this this school, this following of rabbis who, who thought he, I mean, they thought he was it. Hillel would eventually be the grandfather of a man by the name of Gamaliel. Perhaps you remember Gamaliel because he just so happened to be the teacher of a guy named the Apostle Paul. And so the house of Hillel was this important rabbi school in the first, of, in the first century. And as Jesus was a little boy, it was being debated in all the synagogues throughout Israel. The other was the school of Shammai. Shammai was 20 years younger than Hillel, but he was the opposite of Hillel. Hillel was the modern-day liberal. Shammai was the modern-day conservative. They looked at biblical uh, issues very differently. The majority sided with Hillel. I mean, the majority of people are like, we're on his side. But the, but the more conservative, and especially the very passionate zealots, they were on the side of Shammai. And so here's the battle going. And when it came to the subject of marriage, it was a very simple issue. The school of Hillel went back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and basically said this. A man, by the way, among the Jews, only men could divorce. Women, ladies, you couldn't divorce. Greeks and Romans allowed it. Jews did not. And so, so Hillel basically said this. A man can divorce his wife for any reason. He even goes so far as to say if she burns the biscuits, send her away. Write her a certificate of divorce and send her out. I mean, just burning. In fact, he went so far as to say, if you see someone prettier than your wife, send her away and and marry that woman. And so you had some Pharisees who they lined up on that side. I mean, you can divorce for any and every cause. Shammai on the other side said, no, 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 no. The text says if you find something unclean in her, and that has to do with sexual immorality, perhaps adultery, but but not for any and every cause. And so these Pharisees come to Jesus trying to suck him in into a debate that is as common today as it was 2,000 years ago. Still debated today, just as much as it was 2,000 years ago. And so when Jesus answers it, He shocks the daylights out of everyone, including his apostles. He begins by saying this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? The first thing Jesus does in addressing the issue of marriage and divorce in particular is saying you've got to get back beyond Moses. You've got to get back beyond Hillel. You've got to get back beyond Shammai. You've got to get back beyond Moses himself. You've got to go back to the beginning. And so he says, let's go back to Genesis, and let's look at what God said. And and by the way, this is what Jesus does on everything. I mean, he's constantly saying, listen, you you need to go back to the way God intended it to be in the beginning. And so he sends them back. And notice what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, first of all, made them male and female? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And so he begins by saying God had a created order, male and female. 
Now, y'all see this, we, we see this being debated today all over the place. I mean, basically the question is, is your biological sex the same as your gender sex? And if not, then how do you reconcile the two? And so you have people today who, you know, they say, I'm, I'm neither male nor female. I'm asexual. You have people who say, well, I'm both male and female. I'm bisexual. And you have people say, well, I'm physically male, but, but gender-wise I'm female, or the reverse of that, and so I'm either going to live as the other or transition as them. And we see this battle taking place all across our country. And it's a tough battle. And at the end of the day, we have got to say to especially our young people, you got one of two choices. You can either believe TikTok, and I'm being serious as a heart attack, or you can believe the Bible. You've got to believe something. You've got to lay down a, a foundation somewhere. And, and I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm simply saying Jesus, when he was asked about it, said, go back and drill down to Genesis chapter 1 and lay the foundation right there. And he said God created them male and female. That was his design. Oftentimes you'll see people holding up a sign, God made me this way. And that's true if God made you male and female, not if you start distorting those two. And and so, now, again, for people who struggle with that, and the fall affected sexuality just like it did everything else, that can be incredibly painful. And I don't intend for a moment to say I understand that pain. I'm just simply saying that in order to understand how we address it, we've got to go back to where Jesus went. And then notice what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. There is the second part of it. He goes to Genesis 2, verse 24, and he says, God designed us to be married. That's the way he designed us. Man, woman, one out of two. That was God's intention from the very beginning. So lesson number one, God created and designed mankind to be married for his and her good. I mean, God begins by saying it's not good. First thing he says, it's not good for the man to be alone, for the woman to be alone. And so God designed us from the very beginning to be either male or female and to at some point in our life enter into a relationship with the opposite sex where we become one flesh. Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about his own celibacy. We'll see that here in a moment. But he'll say, but, but let me give you the general principle. In other words, Paul says, I'm, I'm celibate and I wished you could be like me. But notice what he says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, the fall has, a se- has affected us sexually. We all know that. And so Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he says, God's will for your life is for each man to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband and to live one another, live with one another in unity and love. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Now, has sin entered the world and messed with it? Yeah, it has. And that's why we, we approach this cautiously and with incredible grace. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. Here's Jesus' teaching. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what follows 
is the teaching of Jesus. And what we focus on way too often as Christians is not the teaching of Jesus. We don't do it. Preachers don't do it. Teachers don't do it. What we focus on is the exception. We want to take the exception and make the exception and explore the exception while not focusing on the principle of the rule. And and we we make a tragic mistake when we do this. Uh, The exception is not the rule. It's the fact that the rule is what we need to be following. What does Jesus say is his teaching about marriage? I want you all to look at this. This is not an Old Testament quote. This is the teaching of Jesus. You can either accept it, reject it, but you have to acknowledge this is what Jesus teaches. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Period. That's the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, Last Chapman, when you and June Williams got married, y'all made a pledge to love and accept one another in sickness and in health, you know, for richer and for poor. You, you know all the things that go into those marriage vows. Till death do you part. And that's the teaching of Jesus. And, and, and that's what we need to focus on. Now, he goes on in lesson number two. God created designed marriage to be permanent. There it is. You, you find someone, you marry them, and you live with them till death do you part. Now, can you get married if one of your spouses die? One of your spouses. That didn't come across right. If your spouse dies. Whew. Yeah, I hope that's not the case. If your spouse dies, uh, yes. Paul's very, very clear about that over in his letters. But marriage is meant to be permanent. And so they come back and, and the Pharisees, okay, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away? And now Jesus has to start doing a lot of corrective action. I mean, why did Moses command the man to give her a certificate of divorce and to, and to send her away? Look at what Jesus says. Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed. He didn't command. He allowed Because of sin, because of corruption, Moses allowed divorce. Okay? Jesus acknowledges that. But look at what he then says. But from the beginning, it wasn't that way. What's Jesus doing? He's calling us to go beyond Moses. He's calling us back to the image of God. He says, I want to call you to an ideal. And I want you to seek it. And it is an ideal. And so he says, let's go back to the beginning. And then he says, but let me tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, the word sexual immorality there in the ESV, NIV does the same thing, is a translation of the Greek word pornea. That's what you see in yellow there. We get our word pornography from it, okay? Pornea. King James translates it fornication. Now here's the problem. There has been books and books and books and books and books and volumes, I mean multiple volumes, written about what this one verse means. And I'm not going to attempt to tell tell you what that means. Uh, Brother Rodney's preached on it. He's taught classes on it. He's met with the elders here in the past and discussed it. This is one of the most difficult texts in all the Bible. And what I want to say this morning is, instead of trying to focus on the exception clause, and I know that's important for some people, and and I understand that. But instead of focusing on that, I want to focus instead 
on, on what Jesus calls us to, which is this relationship in marriage that reflects the image of God. Look at what the disciples say. After Jesus said that, they then says, this, such is the case of a man with his wife, boy, it's better not to get married. I mean, can you see Peter and Andrew and James and John? They're sitting there looking at each other going, you've got to be kidding me. If that's what we've got to follow, it's better not to get married. It's better to stay celibate. Really? So Jesus then addresses that. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he says something, and I, I use the Passion Translation because I think it got it right. Notice the Passion Translation. Not everyone is meant to remain single. Jesus was single. Paul was single. But not everyone, in fact, the majority is not meant to do that. Only those whom God gives grace to be unmarried. And boy, it takes a lot of grace to be single. For some are born to celibacy. Others have been made eunuchs by others. And there are some who have chosen to live in celibacy for the sacred person of heaven's kingdom realm. Paul did that. And he says, and if you can do it, go for it. But that's not the majority rule. That's the exception, not the rule. And, and I know I fall in the rule category. I mean, I, I wanted to be married. June wanted to be married. We chose that route. And, I, and, and one of the things I try to say to people about marriage is that marriage teaches us about God. God has a purpose behind marriage. The reason he created us male and female, he created us different, he created us complementary to one another, he had a reason behind it. And it's these reasons that I want to hit very quickly that are most important. Number one, marriage was created to teach us about God. You know, people think, well, marriage is about, he about happily ever after. And I want to suggest to you, no, it's about holy ever after. It's about realizing who God is, how the Godhead works as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how that in marriage, we come together and God creates unity between a, a man and a woman that reflects the unity that Jesus had with the Father and the Father and Jesus had with the Spirit. Notice the prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now, he's talking about all of God's people. But that is very true in relationship to husbands and wives. Because we reflect the God that we serve, either as a community of believers or specifically as husbands and wives. Number two. Marriage was created to be experienced by two people who are first and foremost committed to God. I cannot overemphasize. If I could say anything to our teenagers, to our young people, when you begin to think about marriage, number one, number one on the list of things you look for in the other person is someone committed to God like you are. I cannot overemphasize that. I mean, can believers marry unbelievers? They can but when they do, they create problems that you don't want to experience. Now, I'm the first to admit, my mom and dad, neither one were Christians when they got married. Neither one. And they both obeyed the gospel the same night during a gospel meeting for which I'm eternally grateful. But when I began to look for someone to marry, I wanted someone that had the same values I had, believed in God like I did. In fact, I wanted someone that wanted to be a preacher's wife. And so when June said to me, I've always wanted to be a preacher's wife, I said, that's it, I'm not looking anymore. 
Whew. Because there's not many fall in that category. And I'm serious as a heart attack. Ask June. She always wanted to be a preacher's wife. Find someone who's committed to God as much as you are. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul said. And you say, well, does that apply to marriage? If it applies anywhere, it applies to marriage. I mean, how in the world do you want to build a relationship that's about spirituality, it's about God, and you marry someone who's not a believer? Now, what do you do when you marry someone who's already there? You prepare and educate yourself so that you can be the best husband and wife that you can be in the state you're in. I grew up when there was no premarital counseling. And boy, let me tell you, we've got, between Brian Shepard and John Micah and others, we've got some great people who can help folks who are getting married. I mean, June and I, we took a marriage class at Free. That was the best that we got. And to say that we were unprepared is an understatement. Now, can you ever be as prepared at 20 years old as you are when you're 60 years old? No. I realize that with life comes experiences that are far better than, you know, head knowledge. But boy, you've got to begin with the head knowledge. And so prepare yourself. And if I would say to young people, don't dare get married without going through premarital counseling. What, what tears me up is that a couple will spend $50,000 on a wedding and they won't spend a dime preparing for their marriage. Brothers and sisters, that makes no sense. Zero, zilch, nada. I mean, we've got to get serious. We're going to live with this person for the rest of our lives, and we're not going to prepare for how you navigate those waters. Talk to Brian Shepard. Boy, he, he, he can help you out on that. It's never too late to begin modeling a godly life for your spouse. If you're in a marriage where your spouse is not a believer, Peter says, let me tell you. And he talks about wives because they're in the most difficult situation in his day. He says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers. They may be one without a word. How? By looking at the character of person you are, the respect and the purity you live by. Jesus calls us to be different from the world and that difference can draw those loved ones to Christ without us even having to say a word. And so we need to live in a way that reflects Jesus in our lives. And then in the last half, Matthew turns to the other M, money. And he tells a second story. This time, it's a ruler, may have been a Pharisee, we don't know for sure. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We know the story. We call it the story of the rich young ruler. He's a young man who very likely has inherited his wealth, he, he may have grown up in a wealthy family. He's already gotten to the point of being a ruler. A ruler here refers to someone who is over a synagogue. In other words, they're kind of like the, the preacher in the local church. And so here's a young man who God is blessed with wealth. He's still young. He's already attained a spiritual role in his community. And he comes to Jesus with this question. And Jesus responds by saying, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. In other words, you're a synagogue ruler. You know that the only one good is God. Okay, why don't you ask me about that? But then he says to him, if you want to enter into life, real simple, keep the commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Solomon at the end of his life, reflecting on the mistakes he had made, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about that, says, now here's the conclusion to the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. 
That's the whole duty of man. And so here's Jesus, a thousand years later, saying the exact same thing. You want to enter life? Fear God? Keep his commandments. To which the young ruler says, which ones? And, and of course, don't we all do that? You know, when I was growing up, do you have to go to church to please God? And if the answer was yes, the next question was, which services? Y'all remember that? I mean, Sunday morning, I mean, is Sunday school required? Y'all remember the old joke of Judgment Day where everybody's lined up, they're meeting with Jesus, and then they hear this cheer go up, reverberating down the line, and they're like, what are they cheering about? They said, Wednesday nights don't count. You know, I mean. Don't we do that? Which ones? In the Old Testament, the Jews in the first century said there's 613 laws. And I'm sure for even this young ruler, he's like, I can't check that many boxes. So which ones? Jesus already knows the problem. But I think he plays along with him because he wants to teach him a lesson. He says, okay, just do the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Four of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Fifth of the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. One that the Jews didn't teach. They said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus is like, no. You love your neighbor and you'll love your enemy as well. But he says, you do that and, and you'll have life. And he fires right back, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And you know what? I think he was serious. I think you look at that and you said, can you really keep all those commandments? Because I want you to notice what Mark says. Jesus looking at him after he said that, loved him. Jesus loved him. He's like, you've got so many things in the right place. But Jesus knew there was still one thing that was in the way of it. And so he says, if you would be perfect, something that Matthew says a lot. I mean, you go over into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The point is not perfection as much as it is maturity. Here's a young man. And Jesus says, so if you would be mature, okay, if you want to mature, look at this. And so he's calling him to maturity. If you would be perfect, if you would be mature, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. And he can't do it. He can't do it. And Jesus knew he could. Jesus, Jesus loves so much about this guy, but he knows that he's got one problem, and that is he's got all of this money, and this money is where God is supposed to be. And so Jesus challenges him, sell it all, give it to the poor, come follow me. And his belief was, I can keep the rules, yes, but rule keeping is never a substitute for a personal relationship with Jesus. Wasn't then, and it's not today. Folks, we, we can keep rules. I mean, we can check off boxes. But at the end of the day, the question is, what's your relationship with Jesus? Are you following him? And, and if you are, you know you're being challenged every day. Because following Jesus is the hardest thing you'll ever do. And at the same time, the easiest thing you'll ever do. Because he's the one who can give you life. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I mean, he couldn't do it. And the apostles fired right back. I mean, Jesus said, boy, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. 
In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the apostles' response to the marriage? It's best not to get married. Well, here's their response to Jesus' teaching. Who then can be saved? I mean, they're like, Lord, you're putting out impossible requirements of us. And Jesus responded by saying, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You see, the problem with money, and this needs to be heard by every one of us in here, is that money becomes, and Jesus Jesus knew this, it becomes that idol that takes the top place in our life that rules everything else that we do. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. And then he says, you've either got to choose God or money. Of all the things he could have chosen, he chose money. And he says, but God, God can do it. In Luke's gospel, he immediately gives the example of Zacchaeus, another rich man. Right after the rich young ruler who turns and walks away, a tax collector responds to Jesus this way. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. The half. Why don't you think about it? If you went home right now and did an inventory of everything you had, could you take half of it and give to the poor? Now you say, you think that's what Jesus is teaching? I'm simply believing that Jesus is teaching. What are you doing with what God has blessed you with? And and with Zacchaeus, he immediately said, listen, if I've defrauded, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. I'm going to make it right. And Jesus said of him, today salvation has come to this house. But many who are first will be last and last first. Haunting statement. And so, this week as we go, number one, prepare for next week, Matthew 20. Number two, if you're married, pray for your spouse in your marriage. Do it. June and I pray every day, and let me tell you, June begins her prayers for praying for me. This morning we got up, we had grandkids at the house, our kids were there, and yet June and I went back in the back, and and she prayed for me this morning that, that God would speak through me. I appreciate that so very much. Listen, when you start praying for one another, and you share that with one another, you'll be challenged to live better lives. Number three, if you know of someone experiencing marriage difficulty, pray for them. And most of us do. Some that are absolutely heartbreaking. Be intercessors. Step in and pray and do more than pray. Offer help to them. And then number four, ask yourself a serious question. Are you using God's blessing to advance his kingdom? I think a lot of people are going to be judged on the day of judgment based on their wills the day they died. I mean, God has blessed us beyond every generation before us. We can take the gospel to the world. It's not that we lack the resources. It's it's that we lack the will to do it. And God's going to hold us accountable for that. If you need to respond today, we've got shepherds who will be going to the side walls here. There will be shepherds in the back back there, also upstairs. Just seek out one of our elders. They've got little name badges that say elders. Seek out them. Some of their wives are with them. Whatever you have need, if you'll share it with them. If you'd like to be baptized, they'll arrange it. If you need prayers, they'll pray with you and for you right there. You can do that right now as we stand and sing.